0: In February 1904, Democratic Congressman John Franklin Shafroth stood up before his colleagues in the House of Representatives and made a shocking announcement. He had been elected illegally. When Shafroth looked over the results of his 1902 election to Congress, he realized that it had been rigged. Unbeknownst to him, someone in Denver, Colorado had stuffed the ballot box in his favor. Homeless men, town drunks and gamblers had been paid in silver dollars to get out the vote for Shafroth. Many of them had voted multiple times. Three days after making his speech to Congress, Shafroth voluntarily stepped down as representative, handing his seat over to his Republican opponent. Shafroth hadn't asked for help winning. The pieces had been put in motion without his consent, by the crime boss. Who ruled over Denver? Even in his native city, few had more than a cursory familiarity with this shadowy power broker. His name was rarely mentioned in the newspapers. Most only knew him as the King. It was not uncommon to spot him outside his office in the American Bank building on 17th and Lawrence. Occasionally, a Denverite might catch a glimpse of him as he passed by in a limousine driven by his young mistress. But for those in the know, there was no doubt as to who ran Denver. King Lou Blonger, boss of the Million Dollar Bunko Ring. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. In today's one-part episode, we're covering Lou Blonger, an early 20th century vice lord. For decades, Blonger's minions swindled people across America, raking in millions for the Bunko Kings Denver-based outfit. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? that's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. They just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement, there was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal Trillion Dollar Shot find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts Between 1890 and 1920, Lou Blonger grew to be the most powerful man in Denver, the head of an empire of confidence tricksters which reportedly numbered in the hundreds and had tendrils throughout the United States. At his height, Blonger made millions a year by swindling victims from Denver to Florida. Much of the police force, and even Denver's mayor, was in his pocket. He seemed untouchable. Until a scrappy, headstrong district attorney with little resources and few allies decided to challenge one of the most powerful conmen in the country. Lou Blanger was born in Vermont in May 1849. As a child, he moved with his parents and 13 siblings to Wisconsin. In 1864, at age 15, he enlisted in the Union Army during the American Civil War. The next several years of his life remained shrouded in mystery. But we know he moved to Denver, Colorado in 1888 at the age of 39. Denver was a gold rush boomtown, an exciting city full of opportunity where a young man could strike it rich in a Rocky Mountain mine. It was also a happy hunting ground for con men looking to fleece wide-eyed newcomers. Denver had only recently grown into a proper city. When the railroad reached Denver, it brought with it miners to work in the Rockies. They attracted shopkeepers and craftsmen, quickly swelling the population. In the span of 20 years, Denver grew from 5,000 residents to over 100,000. When Blondje arrived in Denver, he took a job working for Big Ed Chase. Chase ran the Palace Theatre, which was both a vaudeville outlet and a gambling hall with a capacity for 200 patrons. Back in the 1860s, Chase served on the Denver City Council, During his tenure, he'd made fines for gambling virtually non-existent. Now that he was the city's vice-lord, it was an open secret that the police were on his payroll. Denver's mayor also received a 20% cut of Chase's gambling profits. To further protect his gambling organization, Chase tampered with local elections, ensuring his allies won local posts. That's how Lou Blonger got his start working as a vote fixer for Big Ed Chase. He was in charge of shepherding barflies and homeless men toward polling places on election day so they could vote for Chase's political allies. Eventually, Blonger decided to take a page out of Chase's book and started his own gambling operation. Along with his brother Sam, Lou Blonger opened a saloon where they ran crooked games of Faro and kicked up a percentage to Chase. Blonger and his brother did well enough that they opened a few more saloons, most along rowdy Larimer Street. But in 1894, Denver had a brief spasmic outbreak of law and order. A new, incorruptible chief of police took office, named Hamilton Armstrong. Almost immediately, the new chief set about closing the city's notorious gambling dens. Big Ed Chase was one of several gamblers who tried to bribe Armstrong, offering him $13,000. Armstrong responded by tossing Chase behind bars. With the boss locked up, Blonja stepped effortlessly into the power vacuum. In 1895, the law and order fever subsided. Gambling was made legal in Denver once more thanks to a petition from the city's leading businessmen. They argued that gambling brought money to Denver. Blonger celebrated this return to form by opening a luxurious restaurant and gambling den called The Elite. It featured marble floors, frescoed ceilings, and a tasteful café, while its gambling tables were kept discreetly out of sight. The elite was the swankiest digs in town. Even the city's newspapers lauded its sophistication and beauty. It signalled the wealth Blonger was already drawing as the city's vice-king, as well as the sophistication of his organization. Blonger pulled a decent income from the saloons and gambling dens, but his true passion was Bunko. Bunko is a con. A sucker is persuaded to purchase some worthless object, such as fake stock certificates, at a high price. It was big business in Denver at the time, with hundreds of cons happening every year. A single Bunko could make as much as $200,000. Once Blunger's operations grew large enough, he took over as Denver's vice lord. Like Big Ed Chase before him, he collected a percentage of virtually every Bunko con in the city, big or small. The organization he ran in Denver, essentially a loose criminal syndicate, would later be known as the Million Dollar Bunko Ring. What made Blonger remarkable was the sheer size of his organization. He oversaw a veritable army of Bunko artists. At its height, Perhaps as many as 500 confidence tricksters kicked up to Blonger. But Blonger couldn't manage it alone. His right-hand man, by some accounts, was Adolph Duff, known as The Kid or Kid Duffy. No con man could operate in Denver without getting approval from Kid Duffy. Kid Duffy's headquarters were known as The Lookout, it moved yearly but was always situated in a second-story rented office overlooking 17th Street, the prime, swindling territory in Denver. Kid Duffy, as Blonger's supposed chief of staff, collected tribute from the organization's conmen. He also collected protection money from the Denver saloons and gambling halls not directly managed by Blonger. Those who failed to pay up received a beating. In the early days, it would have been delivered by Blonger himself, or maybe his brother Sam. By the time Blonger had slipped into Big Ed Chase's shoes, he preferred to remain behind the scenes and rule through Duffy. While most operated in Colorado, Blonger's men could also be found in Texas, Louisiana, and Florida. Their scams varied considerably, but what tied them all together was that they were under Blonger's thumb. It was a well-oiled, sophisticated organization. One of the reasons Boulanger's gang was able to so successfully prey on its victims may have been due to a high level of social trust at the time. According to a study by Bo Rothstein and Daniel Ake for the Quality of Government Institute, countries with strong economic growth, higher economic equality, and which are more democratic generally, tend to have a high level of social trust. Specifically, they're more likely to trust strangers. Further, those living in a country with high social trust also expect that those managing public wealth will not subvert it for their own benefit. This might cause them to lower their guard and more readily accept the word of strangers. Perception of how one's society functions, then, is important both to the success of an individual con and to nurturing a landscape where cons are more successful generally. Gaining trust, after all, is crucial to the con man's game. In order to gain the public's trust, Blonger cultivated a reputation for generosity. Owning a 55-acre cherry farm, he'd give away crates of the fruit to charities. He was known to hand out $20 bills to needy men on the streets. At Christmas time, he doled out turkeys to the poor. He also kept up the appearance of an ordinary, hard-working businessman. During the week, Blonger worked out of an office on the third floor of the American Bank building. There, he gave the impression of managing a gold mine in Cripple Creek called the Forest Queen Lode. He had purchased the mine with his brother, Sam Blonger, in 1892. By 1911, the mine was said to produce nearly 800 tons of ore a month. In truth, profits from the mine were relatively insignificant for Lou Blonger. The Forest Queen Lode served as a convenient front for his actual income. Blonger was careful to present himself as an honest, upright businessman. But behind the sophisticated veneer, Blonger was a ruthless crime lord, more than willing to use violence to maintain his grip on Denver. Coming up, we'll detail how Blonger controlled Denver and meet the district attorney who dared to stand up to him. Before we get back to the show, I have a quick podcast recommendation I think you'll really enjoy. It's an all-new Spotify original from Parcast, and it's called Incredible Feats. Every weekday, comedian Dan Cummins, who you might recognize from the hit podcast Time Suck, explores a true account of physical strength, mental focus, or bizarre behavior. He goes behind the scenes into the achievements of world record holders like Ashrita Furman, who's broken records on every continent, and athletes like Wim Hof, whose training methods allow him to withstand extreme temperatures for hours at a time, and even people like Juliana Kopka, who was forced to survive alone in a rainforest when she was just 17 years old. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. New episodes air Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. After arriving in Denver in 1888, Lou Blonger got his start working for local kingpin Big Ed Chase. After Chase's imprisonment, Blonger took over the city and steadily built up a vast, crooked empire. Hundreds of innocent people were cheated by him, directly or indirectly. One young man, Harry Waldorf, was reportedly beaten by a Blonger hood, robbed of $400, and forced to sign checks for money he didn't have. He was so concerned about blackening his family's name when word got out that he died by suicide. A con is not merely parting a fool from his money. It is a dangerous, destructive social ill. And in the case of Blonja's outfit, many victims were reluctant to speak up, because their sense of shame at being deceived was too great. With his victims shamed into silence, there were few willing to stand up to Blonger even after he followed in the footsteps of Big Ed Chase and tried his hand at political fixing. Stories suggest that during one election, a single Blonger associate voted for four men at least 14 times apiece. Police officers were also recruited to drive voters to the polls. It was a cosy arrangement. Blonger would turn out the vote for his candidate who, once in office, would reciprocate by protecting Blonger's rackets. Though, even if Blonger didn't have a personal relationship with a politician, he still tried to fix elections for men he thought would be lenient on crime. For instance, in 1902, 53-year-old Blonger handed out silver dollars to the drunks and gamblers of his establishments in order to get John Shafroth elected to the House of Representatives. Two years later, Shafroth examined the ballots from his election, realized the fix, and did the unthinkable. He got up in front of Congress, announced that he had been elected illegally, and said that his opponent was entitled to his seat. The incident exposed Blondje as a political fixer. Eight witnesses had seen him personally handing out silver dollars in exchange for votes. In response, Blondger announced that he was moving to Cuba. He never actually went, however, or at least not for long. It seems his announcement was a ruse, a way to take some heat off himself and his political allies. He stayed in Denver and quietly set about elevating the Denver Bunko con game to heights of sophistication rarely seen before. While we don't have a complete picture of all the many swindles run in Denver under Blonger's auspices, author Amy Reading breaks down a typical Blonger con in her book, The Mark Inside. A bunco con typically started on 17th Street, where Blonja had dozens of ropers or steerers prowling for marks. The ropers would approach strangers, eavesdrop, and even search through hotel registers for out-of-town visitors. Once the roper found a mark, often a gullible out-of-towner with money to spare, he'd lead him past the lookout, the office of Blonger's number two man, Kid Duffy. The roper would signal up toward the lookout by raising his hat. Inside the office, Kid Duffy's own number two man, Tip, would inform Duffy that the game was afoot. Duffy would send a con man called a Spieler to stand outside the office with a handful of telegrams. The Spieler pretended to be a stock speculator famous around town for his wildly successful stock market returns. Together, the Spieler and the Roper would convince the Mark to buy some stock. The Mark would hand over his cash to an exchange secretary in an office made up to look like a stock exchange. Once the Mark was parted with his money, Duffy would swoop in through a side door, wrap the cash up in newspaper and then run it over to a safe deposit box elsewhere in town. Only later would the Mark realize the stock was useless. If a mark went to the police, the cops would walk around town in circles, never to the lookout or wherever the con had occurred. Sooner or later, the mark would get confused, frustrated, and ultimately give up. After the mark had left town, Blonger insisted that only non-residents should be fleeced. Duffy would split the take. Duffy and Blonger each took 10%, the Spieler got 15 The roper got 45%, the exchange secretary got 5%, Tip got 2% and the remaining 13% covered expenses. The cops in Blonger's pocket received $50 a week regardless of the con's take. By the early 1920s, Blonger, then in his 70s, was at the zenith of his wealth and power. Between 1919 and 1922, it was estimated that the Denver mob under Blonja swindled between $1 and $3 million a year. Or roughly, between $15 and $45 million in today's currency. A fraction of that wealth was used to pay off Denver Police Department detectives, the district attorney and staffers in the Denver office of the Department of Justice. The co-owner of the Denver Post was also a close friend, which goes some way in explaining why Blonger's name rarely appeared in the newspaper. According to author Amy Reading, Blonger had created a black hole in the center of the city into which truth slid and vanished. For years, no one had dared challenge Blonger. The man who finally had the audacity and courage to take on Denver's Bunko King was an upright lawyer named Philip Van Syce. Van Syce spent his first five years as a lawyer working for his father's firm in Denver. During the Great War, he'd served as an intelligence officer in France. In 1920, at the age of 36, he decided to run for District Attorney of Denver and won his party's primary. Shortly after Van Syce clinched the nomination, the head of Denver's largest private detective agency showed up in his office and asked if Van Seis would like to meet a man who could control 1,500 votes in the upcoming election. Van Seis initially turned the flatfoot away, but after some convincing from colleagues, Van Seis changed his mind and agreed to meet the mysterious power broker. Van Seis entered the detective's office and found Lou Blonger waiting for him. Smiling and friendly, Blonja told Van Seys that he was glad a fellow veteran was in the district attorney race. He said that old soldiers like him were proud of young soldiers like Van Seys. Because he was the only soldier in the race, Blonger wanted to offer him $25,000 in campaign contributions. Van Seys, though a little wary, said he was happy to get the help. But there was a catch. In exchange for the cash, Blonger wanted Van Sijs' assurance that if any of the Kingpin's men were arrested in the future, Van Sijs would set their bonds at a mere $1,000, no matter what. Van Sijs politely refused. Perhaps Blonger was annoyed, perhaps he took it in stride, but in any case, he chose to support Van Sijs' opponent in the district attorney race. The contest was a close one, but suburban voters, who were outside of Blonger's control, tipped the result in Van Sice's favor. Before he was even sworn in, Van Sice rolled up his sleeves and got to work. The first thing he did was seek an ally in Hamilton Armstrong, Denver's chief of police. Despite the extensive corruption within the department, Armstrong had a reputation as a tough, upright do-gooder. Whenever he caught a policeman drinking on the job, Armstrong fired him on the spot. Once, when gambling had been illegal in Denver, Armstrong allegedly burst into a socialite's mansion and, without uttering a word, took an ax to the roulette wheel set up in her living room. Armstrong asked Van Sice if he knew anything about Blonger and his organization. Van Sice confessed that he knew very little. Armstrong explained that the man who had offered the prospective district attorney $25,000 to fix bond rates was the boss of Denver. Armstrong, as police chief, answered to the mayor. But the mayor answered to Blonger. Still, Armstrong offered to work with Van Sijs, telling him, If you are on the level, I will get you the dope and you do the work, and we will smash the whole damn bunch of them. But it wasn't meant to be. Armstrong died of a heart attack the day before Van Sijs' inauguration. The district attorney would have to clean up Denver on his own. The day Van Seyss took office, 50 of the city's best con artists left town. They had decided to lay low to see just how serious the new DA would be. One Bunko artist optimistically told the Denver Times that they all hoped to be back in business in a couple months. Van Seyss, however, was determined to drive the scourge out of Denver. He now understood that in order to accomplish that, He had to take down Blonger and the million-dollar bunco ring. Coming up, we'll explore how Van Syce built the case against Lou Blonger. Now, back to the story. By the early 1920s, Lou Blonger and his bunco organization ruled Denver, swindling millions a year out of unsuspecting marks. Newly elected District Attorney Philip Van Syce was the first to seriously challenge Blonger's hold on power. To lull Blonger's organization into a false sense of security, Van Syce publicly pretended to be a naive lawyer in over his head. Secretly, however, he was building a trap to catch Blonger and his men. He made a list of all of Blonger's victims and wrote to all that he could find asking them to testify in the future. He reached out to members of the Secret Service and the US Postal Inspection Service, asking for an education in the ways of the con man. He sought out men who were not on Blonger's payroll and those he could trust. He created an index of over 600 conmen. He hired three private detectives to go undercover as conmen in Blonger's organization. He even routinely rummaged through Blonger's office wastebasket, searching for evidence. One of Van Seyss' biggest coups, however, was that he managed to install a dictaphone recording device in the chandelier of Blonger's office in the American Bank building. As the bug needed regular maintenance, Van Seyss asked an executive at General Electric if he knew an electrician who could be counted on. The GE exec decided to do it himself. For a full year, he would routinely sneak into the attic of the American Bank building to keep the bug operational. Building a case strong enough to take down a crime boss like Blonger doesn't come cheap. Since Van Sys couldn't ask City Hall to fund his case without showing his hand to Blonger, the district attorney had to raise the money himself. He drew up a vetted list of 31 wealthy philanthropists in the Denver area and pleaded his case before them. Van Seyss laid out how Blonja had a stranglehold on the city and how the Bunko King's victims were the same people who could put a stop to him. All 31 philanthropists agreed to donate. While building his case against Blondje, Van Seyss became a capable con man in his own right. He routinely duped Blonger into thinking the district attorney was harmless. For example, to cover up the money he took from the philanthropists, Van Seyss pretended that the cash was raised by churchgoers to finance raids on the city's brothels. At other times, Van Seyss would raid one of Blonger's joints and nab some con artists. Van Seyss would pretend that he thought the artists were respectable citizens and let them go. Afterwards, Van Syce would listen on the wiretap as Blonger laughed at what a fool the district attorney was, unaware that Van Syce was playing him for the long con. While Blonger's dismissal of Van Syce as a threat may seem like arrogance, according to a 2008 paper by Ryan West published in Communications of the ACM, people tend to believe they are less vulnerable to risks than others. Most people believe they are better than average drivers and that they will live beyond average life expectancy. No doubt Blonger thought himself smarter than other Denverites. After all, wasn't he basically running the town? Of course, he likely failed to realize that an inherent, overblown confidence in one's own intelligence was also what made conning people so easy. One of Van Vansyce's most successful ruses was to announce that he was taking a vacation to the mountains for a month. In truth, he hid out in a resort 60 miles out of town in constant communication with his team back in Denver. Thinking he was safe with Van Vansyce hiking and sipping hot toddies, Blonger let his guard down and met with police captains, the deputy sheriff and the mayor in his bugged office. Meanwhile, his men were openly dividing the spoils of their schemes in broad daylight. Once he felt confident he had enough evidence to convict Blonja, Van Seys drew up plans to arrest Blonja, Kid Duffy, and as many members of his organization in one fell swoop. He explained the plan to the governor of Colorado, who gave him 15 Colorado Rangers to help in the bust. In August of 1922, Van Sys' team swept through Denver. 73-year-old Blonger was arrested in his American bank building office. Kid Duffy was picked up on his way to the lookout. The lookout itself was raided, picking up Tip, two Spielers, a roper and a bookmaker, as well as hundreds of thousands in cash and plenty of incriminating evidence. Vanceyce's men burst into apartments and hotel rooms all across town. They also plucked many con artists right off the street. Many suspects picked up that day carried train tickets to Omaha, Chicago, etc., but such was the swiftness of Vanceyce's attack that few had been able to escape in time. Thirty-four of Denver's most notorious swindlers, including Blonja and Kid Duffy, were nabbed in a single day. Van Sice didn't want to take the suspects to the local jail because he worried that corrupt cops would alert other con artists who would flee town. So Van Sice herded the suspects into the basement of the first Universalist church in Denver. For some of Blonger's men, it was the first time they'd been to church in years. At the church, Once prisoners were checked in, they were led to the Sunday school room, where they were questioned while forced to sit in tiny children's chairs. A reporter from the Denver Post wrote that Blonger himself looked like a great gray spider spinning out his thoughts of other days. The next day, Blonger was moved to a jail cell in a nearby town where he immediately went to work to get himself free. He tried to bribe his victims to prevent them from testifying. Some took the money, eager to get back what they had lost to Blonja. Most, however, were more interested in seeing the Bunko King finally get his due. In the two weeks after the raid, nearly a 100 victims returned to Denver to help prosecute the Blonger gang. One victim journeyed all the way from Great Britain to get his revenge on Blonja. During the trial itself, the prosecution called close to 100 witnesses to testify against the kingpin. Meanwhile, it was rumored that friendly bunko gangs in Chicago, New York, Cleveland, and even Tijuana raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for Blonger's defense fund. If that's true, it's likely the other con artists worried what would happen to their own organizations if Blonja was found guilty. They weren't the only ones who needed to worry. Blonger warned that anyone who cooperated with the government would be killed. One witness was told that if he dared to testify, he'd be shot right there in the courtroom. In order to beat the rap, Blonger also turned to what he knew best, confidence tricks. One source we read relates that the Bunko King attempted to con Van Sice with the badger game, one of the oldest tricks in the book. It's really quite simple. A woman who's in on the con lures the mark, a married man, to a hotel room. Then, just as things are getting hot and heavy, the con man bursts into the room, discovering them in a compromising position. The con man then blackmails the mark, threatening to go to his wife if he doesn't pay up. Blonger is said to have tried the Badger game on Van Seys, but the DA didn't bite. Adding insult to injury, the woman to whom he paid $2,000 to act as bait took the money and skipped town. Despite Blonger's efforts, he couldn't prevent the inevitable. Twenty defendants, including Blonger and his number two man Kid Duffy, were put on trial on February 5, 1923. It was a particularly heated affair. The opposing legal teams were seen to quarrel both in and out of the courtroom. In at least one instance, a fistfight fight broke out between lawyers involved in the case. Even the wives and girlfriends of the defendants were said to come to the courtroom armed with pistols under their fancy fur coats. The trial did not go well for the Blonger Gang. They really didn't have a leg to stand on. Their tactics mostly relied on assassinating the characters of the witnesses and introducing pointless motions in order to waste time and money. At one point, when the judge chastised the defense counsel for their behavior, The spectators in the courtroom cheered, applauded, and stamped their feet in approval. On March 23, 1923, the trial came to a close. The defense never called a single witness. A guilty verdict seemed assured. Rumor even had it that the county jail had just added 20 beds to its cells the same number of defendants in the Bunko trial. But Blonger still had a card to play. Blonger attempted to bribe four of the jurors. One, Herman Oakley, was allegedly offered $500 more money than he'd ever seen in his life. But rather than take the money... Oakley is said to have turned the bribe over to the judge and told the prosecution where it had come from. In the jury room, nine of the jurors were in favor of conviction. Only the three bribed jurors held out for acquittal. Oakley reportedly told his fellow jurors that Blonger had attempted to bribe him and called out the other three who had taken the bribe. The clean jurors refused to announce that they were hung and, together, ...turned the dirty ones toward the guilty verdict. After 102 hours of deliberation... ...all 20 defendants were found guilty. Philip Van Syce couldn't have asked for a greater triumph. Denver would never again suffer a crime lord like Lou Blonger. As the verdict was announced... Blonger appeared weak and ashen. At 73 years of age, he was already suffering from asthma, heart problems, and swollen limbs. The trial and conviction seemed to drain him of what little health he had left. On June 1st, the judge sentenced Blonger and his principal lieutenants to seven to 10 years. Most of the others received three to 10 years. One was declared insane and avoided sentencing On October 18, 1923 Lou Blonger was sent to Colorado State Penitentiary Six months later, he was dead So ended the reign of the Bunko King Denver, indeed the whole country would never see his like again Few swindlers could ever hope to reach such dizzying heights as the boss of the Mile High City. Thanks again for listening to Conartis. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Lou Blonger, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Mark Inside by Amy Reading extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast Originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Con Artists was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.